So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1427, retired by 36, Jeremy Schneider, founder of Personal Finance Club. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. For sure, if you could put me in a time machine and send me to 2010, the first time I heard about the existence of Bitcoin and there's six cents a coin, and I thought, no way we'll ever reach a dollar. I was wrong, by the way. I would have dumped all my money in it. I'd be a Bitcoin billionaire. I'd be in Fiji off the, in a yacht or something. <laughs> you would not be on this podcast. Let's just no, say. I still would. I'd be doing what oh, I love. thanks. Welcome to So Money. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We continue to celebrate the Next Up honorees, a list of 25 of the freshest, most influential voices in personal finance today. On Monday, we heard from Ellie Jope, who used her $1,200 stimulus check to build a seven-figure business, How the Single Mother of Four Did It. You'll have to go back and listen to Monday's show. Today, we're talking to Jeremy Schneider. He is a successful entrepreneur and personal finance expert. After starting an internet company in college and selling it at the age of 34 for over $5 million, Jeremy retired at 36, and he has since dedicated his life to teaching personal finance. He is the founder of Personal Finance Club, a community of champions of the individual investor who help further financial education. Jeremy and I talk about what he did with that $5 million. Well, really, it was more like three after taxes. His solution to investing, how to do it without nerves, how to do it successfully, even in today's economy. And what it feels like to be, quote unquote, retired. Is it fair to even call it that? Here's Jeremy Schneider. Jeremy Schneider, welcome to So Money and congratulations. Next up, honoree 2022. How does it feel? Great. Hi, Farnoosh. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very honored. Well, we're so honored to um, be able to work with you. I know Adam Ariyama at Next Advisors, so thrilled for this rollout. He's very grateful to all of the honorees because you're not just honorees, you're contributors to Next Advisor. You are out there doing the important work and also helping to help Next Advisor, you know, spread the word and um, just create this great ecosystem of advice and inspiration. Your story is unique in that, unlike some of the other folks that we're interviewing this week uh, and the next week as part of our Next Up honoree spotlights, you know, everyone's got a different story. And I think that's why we picked you. We wanted people that could exemplify um, some uniqueness in how they have achieved financial independence. Your story started in college um, tell us about the business that you started. How that? How do you even start a business in college? Is that easier said than done? I mean, I couldn't even hold a part-time job in college, let alone you know work on building a business. But you did it, and you not only did it, but it sustained you post-college. You ended up selling it, making millions of dollars. We'll get to the today soon. But tell us about all those years in college and how you came up with the idea and actually made it work. That's very fair. And, uh, you know, I have 
often and still feel like I'm kind of an outsider on this like tech startup world looking in. And the answer is I had no idea how to start a college or how to start a company. And I, I was getting a degree in computer science. I turned down a job offer from Microsoft. I had interned there for two summers as a, as a software engineer. And they, and I didn't, I didn't like working for a giant company. It's a great company, but I just didn't like working for any giant company. And so I decided I'm starting a company. And then I asked the question you just asked, which is, how do you do this? And I had no idea. I was very concerned about the paperwork. Like, how does the government know? Do you just like shout it into the, <laughs> into the sky and declare it? Turns out there's like a few forms you mail in or whatever. And then you have a form that says you have a company. And the hard part is getting people to give you money, um, which took me several years to figure out. In the first couple of years, I was literally living on credit cards. I racked up $10,000 of credit card debt my first year of business just to buy the most meager inexpensive groceries I could find to sustain my caloric intake. Um, and it, was, it wasn't about the third year of business where I actually could like pay myself and start paying off my debt. All right. So tell us about the business idea. I think this is super cool. Like a rent, it's called Rent Links, and it was a syndicator of basically helping landlords disseminate, get the word out about their listings. Yeah, exactly. So if you're a renter and you want to go search for an apartment, you can go to Zillow or Craigslist or apartments.com or rentals.com. And there's there's about 50 of these different apartment search websites out there that are constantly changing and going in, in and out of business. And so to landlords, it creates this problem, which is how do you post to all these so you get the broadest you know, advertising spread or whatever? And how do you keep your ad updated and track all those incoming leads? And so I made rent links where you post once, automatically advertise on 50 different sites, all your phone call and email, all your phone calls and emails from renters are kind of tracked through your system, and it just makes like a nice advertising platform. I feel like I'm giving a pitch for it. I don't own the company anymore. <laughs> um, I sold it uh, when I was 34, but yeah, that's what I worked on for about 12 years. Okay, you probably um, learned a lot in starting that business, selling that business. What did you learn about your personal finances during those 10 years as you were? independent. A lot of us go traditionally, you know, we go work for someone, you are out of the gate working for yourself. How did it work out in terms of like being thoughtful about your finances while you were building this business? How'd you do it? Yeah, I think when some people hear the the snapshot of my story, they're like, oh, he's rich because he sold a company. Easy for him to say. But you know, the 12 years up until that, I was the most I ever paid myself was $36,000 a year. I was the lowest paid employee at my company. We never took any venture capital or funding. And so the way we ran the company was by just spending less than the company made. Like it was a frugal company. Um, it was nice because then I had total control and kept almost all the money when we sold it, except for my mom who owned 30%. I owned 70%. Um, and so frugality was kind of built into my story. And even though I was paying myself $36,000 a year, I was still living below my means on that amount of money. And at the age of you know my early 30s, my net worth, not kind of the company, was over $100,000 because I was just living on $32,000 a year or so and investing four or $5,000 a year every year. Um, and then I had built up $100,000 net worth. And so I think that frugality was a big part of, you know, I, I came from a frugal family growing up. I was very like, careful with the money when I was growing up because we didn't have much money. And then after I sold the company, my my take home, we sold it for about $5 million. My share after taxes was about $2 million. You know, a 34-year-old with $2 million in his pocket could probably burn through that in a couple of years. Not too hard if you start buying fancy cars and flying private or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I just decided I would want to like have that sustain me for the rest of my life. And so I invested it. And now my net worth is over $4 million despite basically not having a job since then. 
How long did it take you to double that money? It, it took about seven years. Um, it was 2015. Now it's 2022. Um, and that's about right. If you look at the historical returns of the stock market. Wow. It doubles about every seven years. You know, there's some, it's not exactly, you know, it wasn't like 100% of it went to one index fund and I just went to sleep for seven years. Like I bought a house in there and, you know, did some other stuff. But um, yeah, pretty typical. What's your mom doing with her, Millie? What did yeah, she so do? <laughs> mom walked there with a million bucks too. And we, we negotiated her retirement as part of the sale of the company. So, you know, they knew that I was going to, you know, I stayed on for two years and helped integrate the company and grow my new team and everything like that. Mom stayed on for six months and she is now retired and she has a, she and her husband have a a Florida home actually in Fort Myers, which was just got annihilated by um, the (gasps) hurricane. So really, they weren't, they weren't there. It got, it got destroyed. Uh, No, her home didn't just the whole city did. The whole city. Uh, Her, I think her pride, like the main part of her home is okay, but they're like boat dock is wrecked and some of the outdoor stuff is wrecked. Um, but they haven't, I don't think they've even gone there yet where this is like, by the time this airs, you know, the hurricane might be, you know, a couple of weeks old or whatever. How did you know that investing was smart to do? Because you mentioned, you know, average 34-year-old with $2 million in his pocket, her pocket. I don't know. You know, I think if they listen to this podcast, they'd know the importance <laughs> of investing. But again, you know, without the literacy or any of that grounding, what made you sure that investing was the right thing to do with that money? I had this weird period of time between when we shook hands on the purchase price and when the money appeared in my bank account, which was about three or four months. And it was this very like, you know, and I was, you know, nothing's a sure thing, but I was like, I might be getting rich. You never know. Like it's pretty likely, but things fall through. And, and I had heard stories about lotto winners who, you know, are garbage men and then they win the lottery and then they become garbage men again because they just like blow the money. And I'm like, I do not want that to be my story. And so I just started reading books. I was like, all right, I'm gonna gonna make this my job to, you know, understand this. And so I literally got like, I think it's called the beginner's guide to investing on Amazon. It was like three dollars or something. And I just read this, read this front to back. I was like, oh, and then I got like a second and a third book. I was like, oh, all these books say the exact same thing. This isn't some super complex series of fancy moves you need to make and you need to make predictions and speculation and GameStop and options and trading. It's just, you put your money in, you minimize your fees, you ride out the the inevitable ups and downs, like one that we're experiencing right now. And over time, that is basically proven to be the optimal path. Some people will beat it, few people because they're lucky, but there's no, there's no trickier way to beat it. So I basically reading all these books is like, instilled this confidence in me, which has also inspired me to start Personal Finance Club to help other people be like, hey, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Everyone who's making it more complicated is probably trying to sell you something. Personal Finance Club. Yes, that's your website and online community. Thanks for the transition. I wanted (laughs) to get to it. Your piece for Next Advisor is really about your passion for target date index funds. Is it to assume that all we need is one target date index fund, you know, this idea that you need this like multifaceted portfolio. What, what's your, where do you stand on that? Is it, could we just do this and write it out? Yes. Okay. That's Walk me through this. It. Walk me through this strategy. So I think there's like a real positive financial value to simplicity and more complexity hurts you, you know? Um, and so there is this type of investment called a target date index fund that is basically this very simple combination of all the best practices of investing. 
Inside of it contains a total U.S. stock market index fund, which is a very, very inexpensive way to buy every single company in the U.S. When you own every single company in the U.S., you are due the growth and profits of that. Um, there's also a total international stock market index fund. In case the U.S. isn't the financial super powerhouse it has been the last 100 years, you own the all the non-U.S. companies. And there's also a bond index fund. And mm-hmm. bonds traditionally go up less in value, but also are less volatile. And so when you're old, if you're like 60, you might want a lot, a lot of bonds because you're more concerned about seeing big drops than you are seeing big gains and you just want the income. But when you're young, you don't want to be in bonds. You want to be heavily in stocks because if the market drops by 50%, that's actually good news for you because you can buy more for cheaper. And so Target Date Index Fund combines all these things into one convenient package. It reallocates them as you age. And so as you um, get older, it moves you from stocks to bonds. It's very, very low fee. It's very, very simple. And my own portfolio isn't 100% a Target Date Index Fund. It's a combination of seven ETFs based on the books I read. It's not a bad strategy. It's just more complex version of the same thing, essentially. And so in that article, I basically looked at, hey, what would have happened if seven years ago, I put every dollar to my name in a single targeted index fund and didn't do all this tricky, complex, smart financial guy stuff. And the answer is I would have more money. Um, yeah. you know, and obviously you can, you can, I could make up other ways if I had bought all Bitcoin or something, I'd have a more, more, more money until I lost, but it's a very simple, optimal way to invest. And I think that, yeah, I would put all my money, I'd put every dollar to my name in one. And just to go through the technicals, a target date fund typically will have the date of your anticipated retirement attached to it. So that's kind of the thing to look for. And your advice is to add 65 or 70 to your birth year, um, assuming you want to retire at that point. And the way that the target date fund works is that the older you get, the closer you get to that like 2060 date or 2055, 2065 date, the more um, it the allocation switches to be more conservative and not as risky, not as much exposure to equities, right? Exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. And I actually think the year has more to do with when you're likely to die than when you retire. So for example, Mm. I'm 41. I wouldn't pick a 2020 target date fund. I'm still picking a 2050 because I want to still be aggressive in my investments for 10 or 20 more years until I'm 70 or so. And then I want to be more conservative. That's a good that's, that's a good reminder. You know, but you read these articles about how some of these target date funds were maybe a little too risky even for those who were approaching retirement or in retirement. There were some people who were in their 60s who got burned in the last few years as the market's been uh well, now we're in a bear market. So it's been an interesting inflection point, I think, in the industry where it's like, maybe we need to be a little bit more conservative even still um, with that. But, but do you, have you been following that a little bit or, or have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think I've read every critique of target date index funds. You know, yeah. the most common one is that they're expensive. But, you know, it, I, I guess one important thing to note is that there are two types of target date funds. There is an actively managed one, which has a high fee. And there's an index fund version, which has a very low fee. And so usually people start with saying they're too expensive. Then you can just say there's an index fund version. Okay. I've heard both critiques. I've heard they're too conservative and I've heard they're too aggressive. And the, the real answer is like, you know, we don't know, right? I think it's reasonable. Um, and if someone, you know, if someone sees their portfolio drop by 15, 20% when they're 60, that's a bummer. But, you know, if you're 60 and you look at the actuarial tables, you still have 25, 30 years of life left on average. You know, maybe more, and so um, you don't. You know, you don't cash out when you're 60 and just sit there and cash and say, "All right, I'm bulletproof. It's just going to sit there and I'm going to watch it do nothing." You know, you still want to ha- be in the game because you want to sustain 
20, 30 more years, which is a very long investing time frame. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? And and by the way, do you consider yourself retired because you're you're on this podcast, you're talking about your program, your website, and you you've a lot of big people like people looking to you for advice. So you're clearly like in demand. What's your definition of retirement? And then what's next for you? Yeah, I mean, like on my Instagram bio, the first line says retired at 36, and that's just kind of like to catch people's attention. I did do nothing for a year after I quit my job. I played video games. I played really? StarCraft too. Yeah, I, I that traveled. That was a follow-up question. Like, tell me about the immediate aftermath of becoming a millionaire, but go Well, for yeah, it. the immediate aftermath was kind of weird because I suddenly, in addition to becoming a millionaire on the exact same day, for the first time in my life, I had a boss and a job because the very <laughs> nice people who gave me all this money now wanted me to work for them. Um, and so the real kind of like retirement moment came two years later where I quit that job. And, you know, for the first time since I was in college, I was just you know, had nothing to do. And so I traveled, I, you know, I did the things I think people think that they would do. Like I worked out, I was like bodybuilding, working out, I was traveling, like cooking, playing video games all day, whatever. And, you know, after a year of that, you just, I just kind of found this emptiness, you know, I'm like, this is not really what I want my story to be for the rest of my life. Um, and, and so I kind of, I cold Turkey uninstalled that video game I was addicted to. And, and then to start, started, decided to do this. And so, yeah, like for sure, I'm not, you know, retired. What does that mean? Does it mean like rocking on your porch with a blanket over your lap? Like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Um, but I'm doing whatever I want, which is kind of re- like retirement. So, you know, I, I work when I want on what I want. Um, and yeah, what's next is just, you know, I, I think the purpose of life, it's, it's kind of like very cerebral, but I think the purpose of life is to be happy and to help people. And mm-hmm. I'm, seeking out those goals. You know, I, I think once money is removed as your primary attention in life, you want to, you want to be happy in your life and you want to help people. At least I do. And and I think that's what I'm doing here with personal finance club. I just really like help. I think money is a big problem for a lot of people. It causes stress. Mm-hmm. It causes anxiety. It causes potentially, you know, homelessness in the extreme case or whatever, um, or, or poverty. Um, and so I think doing what I can to like, add my voice to the the world in the positive way is, is what's next for me. That's great. We appreciate you for that. What are, what are some other sort of traditional advice or just things that you see in the personal finance space today that you want to abolish or you're like, I don't agree with that. Or you have a really different take. I mean, the big one for me that I, it just seems like this virus that's, that's on, especially social media is, predatory insurance salesmen pushing their products as this like holy grail of investing. Um, you know, it's like these life insurance products that have a host of different names, like permanent life insurance, whole life insurance, cash value life insurance, very, I mean, variable universal mm-hmm. life insurance, it goes on and on. And these, and I've, I've met probably hundreds of people who have ended up buying one of these. Zero of them chose to buy it. A hundred percent of them got sold it. And every one of them basically regrets it because they, there's less money in it than they put in. And the pitches are just lies. In fact, I bought one. You know, I I went to TikTok and I clicked on a link and sat through 90 minutes of sales pitch, which I recorded in its entirety. And the guy just lied to my face for an hour and a half. Um, just uh, and you know, it's just crazy bold-faced lies about what this does and what the market does and everything. Um, and people get roped into it. And so, you know, I I, I don't personally enjoy tearing things down. I like rising things up and being positive and saying what the right path is. But I see these victims of this scam 
as I consider it. Um, and I, I want people who are within the sound of my voice to be very cautious about buying any sort of permanent life insurance, not to be confused with term life insurance, which you may need if you have children or other people who depend on your work to live paid or unpaid. If you die and it creates a financial crisis for someone, you do need term life insurance. If you don't have anyone like that, you just don't need life insurance at all. Like I don't have any life insurance. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know why there isn't more regulation um, around this stuff. And I think with social media, it's just made it a lot more confusing for people to, to be able to decipher the, the truth tellers from the salespeople disguised yeah. as financial experts. Um, that's, that's Thank you for pointing that out. You're in San Diego. Tell us about the lifestyle there. I know a lot of podcasters live in San Diego. Really? I, my brother just moved out there. You own property out there. Do you think you're long-term going to be there? Like, What's the, in terms of living below your means as you preach, is San Diego and the West Coast in general a, a place that you can even do that? Uh, it's not a good, it's not cheap. It's not a good place to live below your means. Um, and, and the people often ask me, they're like, Jeremy, it's so expensive there. Why don't you move? You could save money. It is not your thing. And my <laughs> thing is being happy and helping people and I'm rich and I can afford to live here and I love it here. And so that's why I'm here, you know, and, and I think that people should prioritize their happiness. I'm not saying you should go live somewhere horrible to save money. Um, and you can, there's ways to live more frugally in San Diego, of course. Um, but yeah, in terms of the city, I like it. It's beautiful weather all year. I'm 15 minutes from a major international airport, so I can travel. I bike ride to the beach and play volleyball. Um, it's like conducive to my my lifestyle, um, and and I can afford it. And so that's why I choose to live here. All right. What are you teaching in your programs right now? Tell us about some of your offerings. Well, I have two total courses. Uh, sometimes these courses are like $5,000. They're often like $300. Mine are like $79 when they're not on sale and they're often on sale for like $59 or less. Um, and one, I just basically teach how to invest in index funds. And there's no secrets in either of these courses. It's the same thing that I post publicly. It's the same thing you can find in books. It's not a get-rich-quick get stuff. It's just an organized walkthrough of some of these topics. So one is how to invest in index funds. What's a stock? What's a bond? What's a mutual fund? What's an index fund? How do you buy them? What's an expense ratio? The different types of accounts like IRA and 401k. All this confusing stuff around investing, which is such a scary topic. It just walks through very simply using lots of little emoji examples so people don't get too scared <laughs> of it. And then the other one is kind of just the basic foundations of personal finance. I call it how to money like a millionaire. So it covers how to track your net worth, banking, frugality, budgeting, insurance, taxes and estate planning, like all this stuff that also is like, I think a lot of us have mostly figured out, but can be intimidating. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to make this into a sales pitch, but no, again, we, we uh, those are very affordable. I think it's, I'm going to put those links in our episode notes. Don't be shy. Don't be shy about thank that. You. Um, so people are really nervous to invest. I mean, it's investing is scary any day, but particularly now with the market being so unpredictable, um, we have days where you know the Dow is down triple digits. And so we're talking now about this recession. What's your advice to folks who are like, I'm going to wait this out. I don't want to put money in and then immediately it drops. I just don't have the stomach for it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's that's a terrible instinct. And, you know, every instinct humans have about investing is wrong. You know, humans have evolved to survive in this world of ours. So if we hear a, 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 a twig snap, there might be a, a lion looming. And so you run. <clears throat> but for investing, that's really the opposite of what you should be doing. 
Um, and investing, you should be investing like a robot. In fact, any sort of human reaction you have to the market is much more likely to hurt you than help you because other people are having that reaction too. And, you know, computers and other more sophisticated traders can capitalize on those types of reactions. And so some people say, if you don't have the stomach for investing, you shouldn't. I don't think that's true. I say, if you don't have the stomach for investing, you should learn because once you learn and kind of become comfortable with the, with the way the market behaves, you understand it's not if the market's going to drop, it is going to drop. We know it's going to drop, but it's four steps forward, one step back. And because we're in the one step back, doesn't mean stop. It means four steps forward is coming up. And, and so you should get in. And, you know, it's obviously not exactly four to one. Like, you know, we don't, we can't, we can't predict when these things are going to happen. Um, but the best advice, get in, stay in, invest early and often regularly, lower your expenses. So that's why I like index funds because they're very inexpensive. You can invest any amount of money and the fees are very low and then stay for the long term, and you'll be very wealthy. Sticking with the, like just making it be easy and letting it be easy and simplifying, what are some tools, technology apps, Jeremy, that you like, whether that's something that you help, that you use to help with investing or tracking your spending? Um, give us some of your favorites. The big three investing brokerages are Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab. They're all great. None will make you more rich than the other. But I recently had a very good friend of mine say, Hey, how should I start? And I basically quizzed her. I'm like, do you love this stuff? Are you going to want to track it? Are you going to choose investments? And her answer to everything was like, I don't want to do anything. Um, I just want it to work. And then my answer to her was not what I do, but another great option is, is a robo-advisor. These are sites like Betterment or Wealthfront. I think they're great, you know, and they're basically very modern, easy to use apps where you put your money in and basically avoids, you know, puts your money in the index funds, the exact same thing. It's the same stock market the rest of us are investing in, but it's choosing it for you, choosing the right allocation, making it simple, very beautiful interface, and basically avoids, you know, giving you enough rope to hang yourself with. And so, you know, if you're an aficionado and you just love, you know, looking at expense ratios and setting your asset allocation, for sure, you'll want to go with a full featured brokerage like Vanguard, Fidelity, or Schwab. If you just want it to be simple, 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 I love I love robo advisors, and you can stick with it. You know, start with it and go for it for five years, ten years, whatever, and then you can move your money out of it if you want to one day. Yeah, I kind of just say like pick your favorite interface because a lot of these robo advisors they offer the same kinds of investments, similar fees, yeah. and they're just packaged in a, different ways based on who they're ultimately trying to attract. If you you know some are more for you know. Women like Elevas, for example, is is all right, about yeah. women. Um, although let's say they they also you know are speaking to the men, but I think they're clearly speaking to majority female. I think I know what you're going to say to this question, Jeremy, but I've got to ask it because we're talking about investing, and you know the future of investing. A lot of people say is uh, the blockchain, cryptocurrency. Although you know <laughs> it's not had a very good year, and I think the crash came a lot sooner than I think even I called. What do you think? Do you think that there is still something there worth exploring? What's your advice when people come to you and say, "But hey, Jeremy, like I don't want to miss." this next invention or like innovation within the investing world. Um, a lot of people looking at crypto as like the advance of technology and how, you know, investing in tech was really important at an early stage, uh, if you were lucky. Yeah. Short answer is I don't think you should be investing much, if any, money in crypto. Um, so my background is in tech. I have a master's degree in computer science. I have lots of friends who have master's in and PhDs in computer science. And among like this community of mine, you know, we think crypto and the blockchain is cool. 
And we think there's like 50 other technologies in the last 20 years that are cool. And we're very confused as to why people are losing their minds <laughs> over this one. Um, you know, and, 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 and I can't dispute the past performance of it. Like for sure, if you could put me in a time machine and send me to 2010, the first time I heard about the existence of Bitcoin and there's six cents of coin and I thought no way will ever reach a dollar, I was wrong, by the way. I would have dumped all of my money in it. And I'd be a Bitcoin billionaire. And I'd be in Fiji off the in a yacht or something. <laughs> you would not them. be on this podcast. Let's just no, say. I still would. I'd be doing what oh, I love. Thanks. Um, but you know, so but the sad thing is, it's just got this like like media appeal for every reason. And so I have a cleaning lady, which sounds so pretentious, but she's really nice and she helps me. Um, and she came in, she realized like what I did for a living eventually. And so she asked the first question she asked me. Should I be investing in Bitcoin? I'm like, my God, no. Like you should be, you know, paying off your debt. You should be like building cash. You should be investing yeah. in index funds. You should be building wealth, not gambling on the super speculative thing. And so personally, I put like 50 bucks a month into Bitcoin, which like as a percent is like a 0.001% of my net worth just because, you know, just to eliminate FOMO or whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I have a zone of the future. I can't tell what's going to happen. That's why I invest a little bit, but I wouldn't put much. And, and my general rule is with 90% of your portfolio, focus on the tried and true index funds and real estate. With 10% of your portfolio, go nuts. You can day trade, you can buy crypto, you can buy options, whatever, you know, as long as it's not like super leveraged where you're going to like ruin your 90%. Um, but yeah, give yourself permission to, to like get rid of that FOMO, but don't, don't put the farm on it. I agree with that. When you say 90% of your investments in tried and true, like index funds, real estate, with real estate, are you talking about like the home that you live in or an investment property or a REIT? Like what kind of investment are we talking about where you think it merits a large percentage of your portfolio? All of the above, except for your primary home, which is not an investment. Your primary home generally loses money or just keeps up with inflation. Um, it's an expense. Um, and so, you know, for sure, if you are a, like, if I was 24 and had 10 grand to my name and just wanted to <clears throat> wanted to hustle and make money, I'd probably be going to buy investment real estate. I'd be buying rental properties. I'd be fixing them up. I'd be renting them out, going on to the next one. Um, it can be a very lucrative process, but it also is very a lot of work, time consuming, some additional risk. And so, but it's for sure, if people, you know, I talk to really smart, really wealthy people who do that. You know, REITs are okay. You know, you can you can kind of dissect the difference between REITs and index funds of death. And I kind of come on the come off on the side. It's like, eh, probably not worth it. You know, there's real estate kind of already baked into the stock market. By the way, you kind of mentioned about technology with Bitcoin too. Bitcoin also is in the stock market, right? The companies that are starting these right. blockchain companies, like they're in the stock market. And you can you know, you can sure. take advantage of the growth of Bitcoin or the growth of blockchain without having to like go gamble on individual Bitcoins. And real estate is like a very diverse thing. And so if you're if you're inclined and want to do the research and want to learn and read books and hustle and go do it, then yeah, go go nuts. If not, I don't I think it's fine to just put a you know, put your entire 90% in the tar target date index fund and the other 10%, you know, day trade or something. Or do 100%. Jeremy, thank you so much for all this really good advice. I just had um, a listener tell me she wanted more investing tips. I said, what do you like about this show? And what do you want less of? What do you want more of? She's like, I want more investing advice. So great timing. Great. You definitely helped us out here. Um, really appreciate you. Congratulations on being titled a Next Up honoree. We are excited to shed a spotlight on you. You're doing incredible work. And we hope that you'll continue hanging out with us. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, I would love to hang out with you more. It's nice to uh, nice to see you. Thank you for having me. And I'm very honored to uh, be on the list. Enjoy San Diego. <laughs> I will. Thank you. Thanks so much to Jeremy for joining us. See you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. Don't forget to send me your questions. You can email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. And you can also send me a DM on Instagram at farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your day is so money. So money.